I just pray that as we look at the word today, Father God, that you would, you would come and meet us. I pray that every single person here today, Lord God, would have an encounter with you, Lord. I ask that more than the words I speak, I pray that the revelation of Jesus Christ would come to every heart. Father God, I pray that not one of us would leave here the same. I pray and ask, Lord God, that veils, misunderstandings that have clouded our minds would be removed. And Lord God, I ask that we would be filled with a greater ability, passion, and desire. We are, we are starting a new series today, and it is about the book called The Song of Solomon in Your Bibles. You know, it's one of those slightly more obscure books in the Bible. But it is one of the most powerful books in the Bible because of what it represents. It is the story written 3,000 years ago by King Solomon, who was at, at that time leading one of the most powerful empires, really, in the Middle East. And there were some powerful ones there, but he, he was wealthy beyond belief. He was expanding the rule and reign of the Israelite nation. He was famous to the ends of the earth. People came from very far off to find out about how he lived. And, you know, they wanted to actually know how he dressed his servants because it was so beautiful. How they laid out the dinner service at night for dinner. He was famous for every detail of excellence in his kingdom. But he went ahead and near the, near the beginning, I assume, of his reign, he wrote the, down a love story. And this love story was bet between him and a Shulamite maiden. Because she was called Shulamite, we assume that she came from a town called Shunem in the area, which I know absolutely nothing about, but I assume it was lovely. But what is more interesting about the name, being a Shulamite maiden, we never hear her actual name. But the word Shulamite is, believe it or not, the feminine form of Solomon. So when Solomon was writing this book, we don't know what her name was. And she may or may not have come from that town. But what he wanted the Hebrew readers of that book to know is that he was writing a love story to his Solomoness the one who was exactly his counterpart, the one who fit him so perfectly, the one that he was, that looked like himself in feminine form. He wanted people to know this was the closest thing to his heart, this person. The book's very interesting because what it does is it's in very poetic language, it kind of traces the courtship of these two. And I must say they had a fairly rocky courtship because, you know, at times one of them left and then the other one was left there wondering where they were and would they ever come back and fulfill their promises. And it was, you know, so it had a rocky road. I don't know if you've ever um, been preparing for marriage. Sometimes there's some, there's some rockiness there. But nonetheless, now we can see that this happens, has happened in every generation. But right towards the end of the book, in chapter 8, there's the culmination of the, this entire love story. And the passage we're going to read, you will see 
Solomon and the Shulamite maiden walking out of the wilderness. And then perhaps the most powerful verses about love are written right after that. But as they come walking out of the wilderness, every Hebrew reader of this text would have thought of only one thing. They would have thought of the 40 years in the wilderness of the Israelite nation. And they would have remembered how after those 40 years, they walked out of the wilderness into their promised land, arm in arm with their king, the Lord God Almighty. And to them, it would have spoken about going through troubled times and coming out in victory under the power and presence of God. So let's go ahead and read that portion of scripture. It's Song of Solomon 8, starting in verse 5. Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree, I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. I want to tell you a story. It's not a true story, but it's an interesting story. I want you to imagine for a moment, there was a monkey on a deserted island and he is sitting near the beach in a tree and he's overlooking some rock pools and the tide is out and he notices a fish caught in one of the rock pools and this fish is struggling and trying to, he's bashing himself against the rock wall, obviously trying to get back into the ocean. But the fish sitting, I mean the monkey sitting looking at this fish is concerned that this poor fish is, is trapped in a very difficult situation, but the monkey, only knowing his own life, wanting to save the fish, reaches down, picks up the fish, and puts him on the beach. Because he knows if he were caught in a rock pool like that, that's what he would like for himself. The fish lands on the beach, wriggles around for a little bit, and then lies peacefully. The monkey, looking at the peaceful fish, goes away satisfied that he has done a good job and that the fish is now at peace and happy with his environment. Of course, what we know is that that poor fish died. And what we can understand is that if you don't have enough information, you sometimes make the wrong decisions. What I sometimes feel about even my own Christianity, and I think sometimes the Christianity that I see around the world and in many, many churches, well, not, not in the actual church, but in people's hearts, is that sometimes we find ourselves caught in like mediocre Christianity. You know, and it's really not fun. It's like half of you is longing for the the stuff you see advertised on TV and half of you knows that you, what you really need is Jesus and you just left in this very, very difficult place. What we sometimes forget is that as human beings, we were created for that great expanse of God's presence. We were created for the ocean of his love. We were created to swim free, surrounded by the life and the blessing and the truth of God. 
And very often when we, when we walk with each other, and even when we give ourselves advice, we invent man-made solutions to kind of get rid of the, the difficulty and the irritation we're feeling in, the li- in our lives. And what we end up doing is just putting ourselves right on that beach. Instead of recognizing that the frustrations and the irritations and the difficulties that we're feeling in life are not so much a need for dry land, but they're a need for more of God's presence. They're a need to abandon ourselves to the depths of who he is, to embrace the mystery of God, to embrace the fact that we don't know everything and abandon ourselves to a God who's good enough to take care of us. And I feel, to a large degree, this book is about that. It's about abandoning abandoning ourselves to the great and glorious, mysterious, unfathomable, unstoppable, glorious depths of the love of God. Like I said, this book was written by Solomon, but... Scholars throughout the ages have agreed this, that although he was writing it very naturally about his passionate love affair with this woman, on another level, it's an allegory for God's love for his people. Before Christ came, it was speaking of, and Solomon probably had this in mind, God's incredible passionate love for the nation of Israel. Once Christ has come, we now know that the church is the representation of God's people here on earth. And that we can read into it a story, a love affair of God's heart with us. Now, men, I just want to, I just want to preface something. I know when I start talking about love and intimacy and passion, I know, I know you're, thinking, you're thinking, you know, those pretty cards that my wife sends to her friends with the, the little cute teddy bears and the pink hearts and the pastel colors and the, the tinkly sounds, you know, open, you open it and you get tinkly, tweety, birdie music. And you know, I, I, can, I can even see on some of your faces just the temptation to just switch off. Like, this is a lady thing. You know, we're men. We dress in rugged clothes, climb mountains, and rescue people. But the very interesting thing about this book is that it is primarily, primarily, about a man and a father God who is so passionately pursuing the object of his affection. It is about the kind of love that grabs people from the fire. It's the kind of love that um, strongly goes after the lost and the lonely. It is about a father speaking to their children and exhorting them to righteousness. It's about a father um, grabbing their child from danger. It is about a vanquishing hero that goes out and protects the land from the enemies that comes back. You know, you know gladiator style. It's gladiator love.
superhero love. And whether you are male or female, I want to tell you that there is something in your heart that wants to be overcome by a cause and a vision and something so pure and true that is so much bigger than you. And you want to be, you want to be lost in something. You want to have your life mean more than just going to work eight o'clock every day, being on time, handing in your assignments, getting your paycheck at the end of the year, I mean, end of the month, end of the day, end of when you get your paycheck, end of the month. You know, there's something in all of our hearts that wants our life to mean more than that. We want to be caught up in a grand plan that is glorious, true, and victorious. After they come up from the wilderness, it says this, under the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you, she who bore you was in labor. Interestingly enough, an apple tree to the Hebrew reader would have been the place of love. I don't really know why. It boggles the mind, but nonetheless, when they talked about apple trees, they, talked to, they were talking about the place of love. And what? Solomon is saying in very poetic language, he's saying, Under, in this place of love, there are two encounters every person will have. There are two places where God meets you. At your birth and a thing called an awakening. How many of you um, have been at the birth of a child? You can raise your hand on this one. I know I often tell you not to raise a hand, but this won't embarrass you. Well, I know you were all present at least one birth, otherwise you wouldn't be here, you just don't remember it. <laughs> but I remember when my children were born. Boy, do I remember. But <laughs> you know that, that moment they took their first breath? You know, it was like God entered their room. It's like, it's like the Spirit of God breathed into them at the same time as they took their same breath. It was like, you know, you wanted to take your shoes off. It was like holy ground. It was like God came down to that moment. It's like all of heaven pauses at the birth of a new human being, at the creation of a new human being. It's so, it's so incredible and it's so much of God's heart. You have heard it said many times that God is love. Believe it or not, it does come from the Bible. There you have it, that God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him, 1 John 4, 16. Have you ever loved someone who has not returned your love? In your teenage years, you will remember that quite often. But as parents, sometimes we know our children love us, but we're loving them passionately and they're giving us back some other thing that doesn't really look like love. You know those times. Or maybe you've got perfect children. I don't know. I, I had it a few times. But there's a certain level of frustration in that. You know, I remember holding my baby sister when she, were, when she had just been born, and I, I, I was about four years of age. And I remember just thinking, 
Oh my, I just want to, this thing is so cute, adorable and wonderful. I just want to squeeze it with everything I've got. Luckily, my mom was there to stop me. But I felt some, some aggravation that this, this feeling inside of me could not be expressed. So if God is love, how frustrating would it be if he had nothing to love? How frustrating would it be? What would he do in that instance? Being the glorious creator that he is, he would simply have to create something to love. We have the first three chapters of Genesis to let us know what he did do. He created you and me as objects of his love, as ways for him to express a deep yearning in his heart to love. You know, we often think we are successful when we do these incredible things for God or when we um, succeed at certain jobs or workplace things. When we become famous or, I don't know, write a book. I don't know what you, your object of, or your level or your indication of success in your life is. But I want to propose this to you. That none of those things are true success, but true success is this, is that you have learned to be loved by God. Because the primary reason you were made was to be loved by God. And if you accomplish a thousand other things, but you never accomplish that, you have never fulfilled your purpose. And so men, once again, I want to remind you that receiving God's love is not getting a present of a cuddly teddy bear once a week. That God's love is powerful, energetic, life-giving, strong, defending the innocent. Have you... Have you ever thought about what it must have been like for Adam when God created Eve? He put Adam to sleep, took out of his side Eve, out, out, of, out of his very being. It says originally that God created mankind, male and female, so it's almost like in one being there was already male and female. God put Adam to sleep and almost separated out Eve from his very soul. Solomon Son and Solomoness, it was like Adam and Adamess. When he woke up and he saw, oh my word, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, this is the exact counterpart. This is the one that completes me, completes me. Jesus Christ, when he hung on the cross, a very interesting thing. At one stage, they wanted to check or they wanted to hasten his death. So they went to the cross and they were going to break his legs, which would cause him to die very quickly. I won't um, bore you with the medical details. They went there and they found he was, a, or they, to, in order to check whether he was dead or alive, what they did is they took a spear and they, they jabbed it into his side. And it says water and blood flow, flowed out, indicating that he was already dead. Or if you like, asleep like Adam was. 
And at that moment, God reached in to Jesus Christ and brought out his bride from his side, the church, you and me. And when Jesus rose again, what did he do? The Spirit of the Lord came down on, man, on the, on the get believers and the people who are there in Pentecost came down upon him, them and birthed the church. If you like, the Christess, his exact counterpart, the one made exactly for him, bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. It goes on the, um, the scripture and it talks about set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is as strong as death, jealousy as fierce or demanding as the grave. It's flashes of flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Also, again, in Hebrew thought, a seal was a very specific thing. It was a, a wax, um, a blob of wax that they would imprint with a, a seal that represented them to indicate that this thing that they were placing the seal on belonged to them. A seal was a sign of ownership. And the scripture has taken us through the fact that there is this in love encounter between God and creation that brings human beings into existence. That we were born in love and the object of his love. And that there is a second awakening that comes to us. That when we encounter Christ and we become part of the bride of Christ and we enter into this, this love affair with our king. And here it begins to describe that love. And it says, it's, it says, Solomon is saying this, but if you like, it is Christ, Jesus Christ, your Lord, your, your King, your, your exact counterpart, looking down at you and saying, set me as a seal upon your arm, as a seal upon your heart. What's he saying? Give me absolute ownership of every part of you. That that's what my love looks like. That you would, that you would surrender everything. That you would have a mark over your mind and your emotions and over your actions that said belonging to Jesus Christ. That he would have complete and total access to every part of you. This is what his love looks like. This is what he's asking of you. As he pours out everything that is himself, he is asking that you would give him everything of who you are in return. And sometimes we are so ashamed of who we are, really. We are so ashamed of who we are that we want to hide parts of who we are from him. And what he's saying at this moment is, no, don't do that. I love you as you are. I know that you're flawed. I know that things are right. But give me access to every part of you and mark my words, you will become a mirror of me. And those things that are shameful and hidden in your life will become redeemed and glorious as I invade that part with my glorious love. 
he goes on and talks about this fire, this jealousy. You know, that's something we're trying to rid our lives of. But here is, is God declaring that he's, he is a jealous God, that there is this fiery love that is uncompromisingly going after you. That literally, when your heart is turned towards something else more than it is turned to Christ, God's jealousy rises up. He hates that thing. Have you ever wondered why some things go wrong in your life? I want to propose to you that there are times that God jealously destroys the things that you love more than him. Because he is a God that created you for love and is going after that with everything he has. And he knows that the greatest and most liberating place you could be is to be completely his. That like that fish caught in that pool, you don't need more beach, you need more sea. Fire is all-consuming. You know, I, I don't know if you've ever watched a house burn down. <laughs> I hope you never have and you never will see that. But it's, it's fire leaves nothing behind. It takes over everything. When we look at that symbology of death, his love being stronger than death, you know what? Death comes to everything and what, it is complete. And he's saying, my love is even more consuming than that. John the Baptist, when he began his ministry and he was baptizing everyone, he began to speak of the Messiah that would come. And he said of Jesus, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Have you ever wondered what that fire was? Remember when the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost and they were all in that upper room. What appeared on their heads? Flames of fire. What is God talking about? Here he is in the Song of Solomon talking about his love being like a fire. He talks, John the Baptist says, Jesus is going to baptize us with fire. When the Holy Spirit comes, tongues of fire are there. Jesus, just before he went to the cross, he prayed a glorious prayer. You can go and read it. It's in John 17. And it, it gives us a window into his relationship with his father. Because he, he just pours out his heart to his dad and he's just talking to his, fa his father. He prays something right at the end of that scripture. He prays, Father, let them, talking about you and me at the church, let them love me as you have loved me. God, Jesus' greatest desire is that you would love him like God loves him. Do you know that it takes God to love God? Do you understand that? That, that what he is asking of you is so beyond your ability that you don't stand a chance. And Jesus knew that. And yet, you were created for that very thing, to return that love to him and create this glorious, intense cycle of him loving you and you returning that love to him. I wanted to pro propose to you that the way he got this right is that he said, okay, I will come and be in you and I will love through you. 
Jesus Christ. I will love myself through you with a passion that you cannot even imagine. I will supernaturally give you an ability to love like you have never had before. I will give you a passion and a zeal for my kingdom and the things of God that will overwhelm you, will take over, will be like a fire. It will consume everything. It will become your undying passion. It will become everything to you. And there is a call from the Spirit of God saying, will you abandon yourself to that fire? Will you give yourself to the great plan of God that we would be consumed by a passionate desire to know Him and we would live in that love relationship and we would become flaming fires of revelation to the world around us of who Christ is. And if this seems extreme to you, I know, I want to say there is something in your heart right now that is saying, yes, I want to be that kind of person. Why? Because I know that's why you were created. And I still have very mediocre days. I have days where I just am making it through. But I want to propose to you that we were never meant to live in mediocrity. When you look at how the first generation of Christians lived absolutely unflinchingly determined no matter what opposition no matter what comes I am going to share Christ I'm going to live for Christ what gave them the ability what gave John the ability to be boiled in oil and still refuse to deny Christ I'm telling you it was this it was this fire inside of him that could not be quenched it was this consuming passion that just seeing Christ and knowing him and wanting to be like him and wanting to give his whole life for the glory, that people would see that glory. What is going to give you the ability to love the people at work even though they are so unlovable? What is going to give you the ability to stand up and be counted as Christian when everyone around you is mocking it? What is going to give you that ability? What is going to give you the ability to wake up every morning and seek his presence, pray and read your Bible? What is going to give you the ability to love your children when they are being obnoxious? Your, my children, not yours. What is going to give you the ability? I want to propose you nothing less than this. God's fire coming into your soul, consuming everything. And, and you united with Jesus, loving Jesus as God loves Jesus. Last point I want to make is that it closes and it says, Many waters cannot quench love. Neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, it, could not, it would be utterly despised. What am I going to say to you is this. Is that same fire in your soul is what is going to overcome every difficulty, every flood, every burst geezer, every unexpected bull, every broken relationship every persecution and humiliation, every uh, weakness and difficulty, every disappointment, that fire of God within you is unstoppable. 
And that is the thing that will make you stand when no one else can stand, will make you move forward when no one else can move forward, will make you strong when it's difficult. That will comfort your heart in, in pain and hardship. We are awakened to true love. As we encounter God's love, we are brought to maturity as we learn to receive in God's love, as we learn to receive and give God's love. We overcome adversity by learning to live in God's love.